Welcome back into Going Nuclear, everybody, with myself, Trevor Hall, and Uranium Insider, Mr. Justin Hune. Justin, we kick off the second year of Going Nuclear. Congratulations. We got one full year under our belt. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very pleased to keep doing this with you, and I think we're going to try to uh, do this on a more frequent uh, a more frequent time frame, uh, month over month, uh, possibly even week over week. Do a couple of months yeah. if we can do it. And there's plenty to talk about. Had a banner year last year for the commodity. It was the best performing commodity. Uh, very excited for what's coming. Yeah, 2023 was a fantastic year for nuclear energy and also the investors that uh, dabble into these equities. Uh, so maybe we just kick things off because you know, not too long ago, you and I did our recap on 2023 you know during the holidays and so we don't need to rehash this but we are in now in 2024 justin so let's talk about expectations or what your thoughts are for the new year because you know i don't disagree with you on much of anything but i kind of have a feeling this might be something you and i disagree on if i do okay let's get into it (laughs) yeah i actually uh you know you know i'm as a man of watching charts and markets Things have moved pretty dang quickly on a few of these equities. Uh, specifically, I'm thinking of the uh, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. That thing really moved from, you know, it was about $16, give or take, earlier in the year in 2023. It traded up to $28. When, listen, when I see charts go high quickly, uh, I typically expect some sort of a pullback. Uh, you know, I, I, I just a little concerned that maybe this was overdone. Well, one thing we have to remember is that uranium stocks are still stocks. And mm-hmm. oftentimes what I've noticed, not just in this sector, but many other sectors is regardless of how rosy the fundamentals are after a good run in stocks, especially the timing of this last run, right? The timing of this last run into Q4, uh, into, into the early Q1 of this year, for the commodity and therefore the equities uh, leading up at least until December where we equities have been kind of been resting for the past four to six weeks, which is, which is totally fine, but equities need to rest. It doesn't matter how good the underlying thesis is and the fundamentals are equities tend to need to rest. They need to pull back, need to wash out a little bit of hot money that tends to happen. I think we've seen a little bit of that big dividends from both URNM and URA. URA's dividend created a bit of selling in the market, not a whole lot, but a little bit didn't affect things that much. Then I think we're seeing a little bit of profit taking currently happening right now. Capital gains that that folks didn't want to book for 2023, taking a little early profit in 2024 that they won't have to pay taxes on until April 2025. Understandable. Um, But when you talk about the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, or I guess the spot price itself, which is essentially what that trust is tracking, uh, if you ignore the discounter premium to NAV, which it's almost almost exclusively at a discount for the last year with a couple of small exceptions. The commodity is not something that is traded like a stock. So, Mm -hmm. and especially in the market right now, because it's so incredibly thin on the supply side and there's predictable demand that is coming into this market and continues to exist in this market on a month over month basis that Nobody is trading this and saying, oh, the RSI is overbought on spot uranium. It's time to take profits and sell here. That's just not what is happening. So the commodity itself and technically yellow cake and the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, even if the discount to NAV remains relatively high or even grows a bit, can absolutely hockey stick. 
um, there's there's really nothing to stop it besides new supply that is coming into the market on the sell side to to kind of stem this price movement. I think that we're going to see some fluctuations, but I think the trend for the price of the commodity going higher is going to continue and is potentially going to rise relatively sharply this year. Why? Okay. The past year, we've seen the price rise 85% in 2023 is a huge, huge move for the commodity. There are a number of utilities that have uncovered requirements going out for the next couple of years. Most utilities are covered for the next couple of years because they have to be because the time that it takes to run that material through the fuel cycle, you have to be relatively covered. But there are a handful of utilities that have been sitting on the fence and are, are, are shocked to see what's happening to the price because nobody told them this would happen besides the investors and nobody listens to the investors besides the other investors. So the Mike Alkins and the, and the, the guys from Segra, uh, myself, a handful of other people have been, of course, this is what is going to happen. Supply is going to get so constrained. The price is going to go up substantially and you guys are going to have to buy it. And they didn't listen, but here we are. So I think this year, at some point this year, it could happen tomorrow. It could happen next month. It could happen six months from now. There's going to be a couple of large utilities that are probably going to come to the market and just bite the bullet and say, okay, we've got to buy. We need to buy in size. And it's going to be a, a shockwave. It's going to be a wake-up call for any utilities that are uncovered going out for the next five years. They're going to have to step up to the plate. That's going to keep pressure under the price. And that's not even to, to speculate on any further financial buying. Everyone talks about Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, but don't forget about Yellowcake. They can buy $100 million of uranium per year from Kazatomprom. Um, don't forget about Zuri Invest. They're utterly quiet. They don't say anything. Nobody knows what the heck is going on over there, but we do know that they've at least been a marginal bid in the market for the past eight months. Then, of course, you have individual hedge funds, hedge funds that are buying uranium in the spot market. That is still happening. They're not buying units of spot. They're literally buying cake in a can and having it stored at Converdine or Comurex or Port Hope. That's what's happening currently. So all of that spot market speculation by financials, that's sort of this other thing that can happen and will continue to happen at least marginally. If it happens in size, it's going to be lights out. Either way, we've got a severely supply-constrained market with consistent demand that's relatively simple to model out. And there's, there's nothing that we can see, Trevor, that's going to stem this rise in price in the short term. Yeah. Well, uh, I look forward to shoving my foot in my mouth, I guess, later this year. <laughs> if that is the case, Justin, and you're welcome to remind me of my thesis <laughs> as we progress through 2024. Uh, let's talk about a couple other uh, bull cases here. There's there's some issues, production issues within the majors that have uh, have come up into the, into the market and v- investors are paying uh, very close attention to this. To give us a sense of what's happening. Sure. Well, I think the big one to talk about is Kazatomprom and, and Kazakhstan in general on a 100% basis. And I know we've discussed this in the past, but the way that they mine is with ISR mines. They're, it's a series of wells and you have to drill this uh, well field as you progress into further into any particular deposit or start to drill out a new deposit. You have to drill out the well field. You have to um, impregnate the deposit in the the underground ore body with the uh, with the lixiviant, which in this case is is sulfuric acid. That takes time for that sulfuric acid to interact with uranium. So from the time they start to drill the wells to the time they're actually producing is about eight months. Peak production is twelve to eighteen months. Following that, it just declines really quickly. So they have to drill all the time. 
And in order to increase production, let alone maintain production, to increase, you have to see a big jump in CapEx spending for their well field development. Then add 12 months to that production increase. We haven't seen this increase in CapEx yet. So they are, they're trying, they're shooting for, I think, uh, 2023 production of 22,500 tons, about 58 million pounds of uranium. And they've already forecasted 2024 to be um, 10% below their subsoil use agreement levels, which would be approximately 25,500 tons mm-hmm. or about 65 million pounds of uranium. We don't think they hit it. And we believe they're going to come to the market in the next three to four weeks when they announce uh, their their results for 2023 and update their forecast of production for 2024. We believe they're going to tell the market that they're not going to hit that. Um, that's going to be a decent little catalyst for us, in my opinion, because Adam Prom planning to ramp production is basically the main thing that not only the industry is hanging on, but the investors also. It's been the primary bear case forever because Adam Brown is just going to turn on the taps as soon as the price is this is at whatever X make up your level. Uh, they're just going to turn on the taps. They're going to flood the market and bull market over that, of course, in our opinion, is utter BS and it's not going to happen. But mm. when they tell the market in three or four weeks, they're not going to hit that twenty five and a half thousand ton and they're going to they're going to forecast for a lower number. That should get some investors uh, woken up to the fact that nothing is going to come into the market in sufficient volume on the supply side to curb this price rise environment that we're in. I think we're going to continue to see the price rise. I think we're going to blow past 100 bucks a pound probably in the next six weeks, possibly even sooner. And it's going to be off to the races. Um, of course, to your point, like I said, Equities are equities, and they're going to have their volatility. We're going to see them outperform the metal. We're going to see them underperform the metal, and they're going to add incredible volatility to the actual commodity itself. But producers are struggling right now. The existing producers that are making money hand over fist at these prices are struggling to increase their production as they're as they're forecasting. Uh, Cameco also is going to be um, having a conference call on their Q4 and, and 2023 totals. I believe that's the first or second week of February. We also believe that they're going to uh, forecast or they're going to report that they missed production in 2023. Um, not sure if they're going to have to revise that for 2024 either, but we'll just have to see. Either way, supply, there's no magic bullet out there. It's it's just, it's a problem and it's going to be a problem for the industry to, industry to respond. And it, like Doomberg said, uh, you're going to hear in just a minute. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no price at which supply just can start flooding into the market. It doesn't matter if it's uh, sixty-five dollars a pound or one hundred and sixty-five dollars a pound. It takes a long time for supply to respond, and that, in my opinion, is the opportunity from an investment standpoint: is to see we have this supply gap. Nobody can fix it until Arrow is producing, until Kazakhstan actually gets it together and can ramp up production. That is right. going to take some time. Uh, and France is doing its part to make sure that supply gap is maintained. Uh, you know, last I think last time you and I talked about the COP28 uh, news from that event, and we'll talk a little bit about that with our friend Doomberg here in just a second. Uh, but France, the biggest generator of nuclear power in Europe, uh, came out recently, the last couple of days, actually. Uh, they are going to require six new nuclear plants. Uh, or th- those are in plan, but they may require to build more than a dozen, maybe even 14 new plants in France alone. Uh, this was news that uh, hit the market here this last couple of 
days here, Justin. Huge news. Uh, obviously, sentiment continues to improve. And uh, <laughs> France is, t- we're going to talk about Germany's move a- away from nuclear power and how this is just the polar opposite here in France. Yeah, this this has been um, a, a relatively significant shift. The the previous administration in France had been sticking with their plan that they that they uh, that they came up with in the in the two thousand teens, which was to phase out nuclear and to start phasing out nuclear by twenty twenty five, and then to entirely phase it out, I believe, into the twenty thirties. And they did a complete one eighty on that about five years ago. And not only are they life extending many of their existing reactors. But they announced, I believe it was about two years ago, that they wanted to build six new power plants and said, maybe we'll build more on top of that as well. And these, what we're talking about are EDFs, um, uh, EPR, the pressurized reactor, uh, the EPR2. It's a 1,650 megawatt reactor. These are monster reactors. So they have solid plans, to your point, to build six more. And they just announced a couple of days ago that they intend to build eight in addition to those six, and I believe that time frame is by 2035, so 10 years, mm-hmm. 14 large 1,650 megawatt EPR2s. These are massive reactors. And of course, you know the uh, EDF is 100% state-owned now in France. And Arano, which is their uranium mining uh, conversion and enrichment state-owned company as well, is kind of in a pickle on the supply side. So they have a large new mine in, in Kazakhstan, that's a joint venture with Kazatomprom that they're under uh, developing right now. That's the South Torkaduk mine, but they're having problems in Niger. They're looking for exploration, uh, an ISR development project in Mongolia. They've done a, a test on that. Of course, Mongolia is sitting right in between China and Russia and the French are just going to pop in there and supposedly uh, start producing uranium uh, by the end of the decade. But they've got a, they've got a supply crunch on their hands in terms of uranium. So the fact that, we're seeing France and many other countries kind of embrace nuclear here and have pretty, uh, pretty aggressive build-out plans. While the uranium production side is relatively precarious, I think is quite interesting. Now, these 14 new reactors in France, that doesn't really mean a whole lot for uranium demand in the next year or two or three. But it does, of course, underpin the overall growth uh, of the sector. Uh, that's going to remain high, uh, estimated, yeah. you know, three or 4% compound annual growth rate going out towards the end of this decade uh, and year over year. That's a huge growth rate for such a large industry. And it's, it means consistent and growing demand for uranium. Uh, Justin, uh, you know, it's obviously the fund in the uranium sector <laughs> hasn't slowed down. Uh, so we're going to jump into our conversation with our favorite green chicken, Doomberg. Uh, this is the first time he's been on this podcast. Obviously, you and I know uh, his and his team's work uh, very well as we're both uh, subscribers and avid readers of theirs. Uh, but this is an interesting conversation because, you know, he's called for a fossil fuel energy glut. So we're going to talk to him about what that means for nuclear energy in 2024 after having such a spectacular year last year. Uh, and his insights are a little profound. He's such an eloquent speaker and also, you know, obviously author. So uh, we should jump into this conversation with Doomberg because it's, you know, it might make a, a few listeners head spin a little bit. <laughs> Agreed. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Well, I find it uh, only appropriate to kick off 2024 here on the Going Nuclear podcast with everybody's favorite green chicken, Doomberg. Doomy, welcome to uh, Going Nuclear. I know you've 
you're quite frequent uh, on Mining Stock Daily, and uh, you know you and Justin know each other well, but you've never been on this podcast, so welcome. I must say, this cross is one of the last bucket list items off oh. of my uh, off of my personal scorecard. What a way to start 2024, Trevor, <laughs> Justin. Hope you had a, a fantastic holiday, and I, I really honored to be on your podcast and congratulations by the way on on this and all of your other endeavors uh, both trevor and justin we were chatting a bit before we hit record it's been a, a great year for anybody interested in the in the nuclear slash uranium sector and and justin in particular has played a, a i think a really substantial and admirable role in in some of that and and so to the extent that um what we have all been lobbying for, hoping for, and um, and waiting for is beginning to materialize. You know, sometimes in life you have to take the W, and, and uh, what, a, what a way to start 2024. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Thank you. So, Dumi, Dumi let's, uh, let, let's maybe just jump right into it. I mean, 2023 was just an exceptional year for nuclear energy, not only for the spot price of uranium, but also for sentiment uh, improving just drastically. And we could go back almost month by month and talk about specific news out of those time periods that really helped improve those statuses. But, you know, kind of summarize 2023 and what it meant for you following nuclear energy, because you had written a lot of pieces regarding this as well. And how did it how did it kind of evolve? I think the way to frame 2023 is to look at what transpired at COP28 um, at the end of November, early December, which I think was a seminal moment in the, the history of nuclear energy and its role, its inevitable role in our collective energy future. And if you take, just take a step back and think about how far we've come from Fukushima, for example, it's truly staggering. So what was agreed upon at COP28? I'm sure it's familiar to all of your listeners, but for the very first time, nuclear was referred to as clean in the global stock take. And, and I wouldn't take that milestone lightly. I think that is actually very significant. Um, the U.S., and full credit to Joe Biden, who we have obviously written critically about on many occasions, but uh, we try to be, um, we, we try our best to be ideologues and not partisan. And when people who perhaps we don't agree with often do things or say things that we agree with, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Um, Joe Biden and the U.S. led a coalition of 22 nations that committed to triple nuclear power by 2050. And the early signs from that meeting is that's not some platitude that everybody signed up for. We're seeing real, tangible announcements along that line, uh, not the least of which is the news coming out of France these days or the UK's commitment to invest in the upgrading of uranium uh, to close the supply chain gaps that have been exposed due to the, the war in Ukraine with Russia. And then I think the last headline from COP28 is that Malthusian opposition to nuclear power is steadily becoming untenable, almost to the point where I think it's becoming a fringe opinion to hold on the progressive environmental left. And um, I don't think we should take our foot off the pedal, but I do think that, um, you know, kudos to the small but very talented, uh, relentless, social media savvy, pro-nuclear advocates that have blossomed uh, in the past three or four years as the energy crisis unfolded and then abated and and the the true challenges associated with decarbonizing our economy ha- have been laid bare. And and ultimately, as we've said a thousand times, and you and I have discussed on your podcast, uh, Mining Stock Daily, there is no path to substantial decarbonization that does not pass right through nuclear. We would argue there's 
no real path to substantial decarbonization anyway. But if you're going to try to decarbonize, you certainly can't do it with the strongest of your hands tied behind your back, which is ultra high energy density, clean, reliable nuclear power. And so, um, you know, reflecting on what Chris Kiefer and team have been able to help pull off in Canada and the evolution of the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust and pulling up my Bloomberg this morning and seeing that uranium is trading at $93 a pound, which was unthinkable when mm. this was, you know, um, just a bunch of people on Twitter a couple of years ago. It's great. I would say that the um, the only two flies in the ointment that one needs to be mindful of is sentiment is so one-sided right now that generally that is the stuff that begins to mark the potential for at least a short-term pullback. And so if anybody's trading the situation, they at least should be mindful of risk and risk management. And if somebody is sitting on a huge amount of gains, they may want to consider at least partially hedging some of those. Um, having said that, we are nowhere near the all-time high for the price of uranium and the, the, the uranium stocks has, have not really followed through on the price spike that we've seen uh, in uranium, which is something that gold investors are all too familiar with and, and is a problem that might not resolve itself on a time frame that would satisfy people's um, patience. But if, if we think about it, the big winners of COP28 are humanity, first and foremost, um, the nuclear power sector, uranium miners, and pro-nuclear activists. And I would say the big losers are old school Malthusians and frankly, Western coal power plants, but that's perhaps a subject for another day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of good points there, Doomberg. And thank you so much for joining us and appreciate all the kind words. Um, I'm an avid reader of your content. And honestly, uh, I think your writing and <clears throat> the writing that you and your team do is amongst the best I've ever read on any subject. And it's uh, it's brilliant stuff. So please keep up the good work. Uh, I read every piece you guys put out as soon as it's put out. So just wanted to, to say that and, and also wish you the best for this new year as well. Um, something that came up in my mind as you were speaking about nuclear following the comments regarding COP28 proclamations, 22, 24 nations, whatever it was, pledging to triple nuclear power globally, not necessarily individually, but globally by 2050. It's still a profound statement. And whether or not there's concrete commitments involved in that statement, what that statement means is more significant. Uh, to your point, to the first time ever at a conference of this magnitude where nuclear is labeled as quote unquote clean. It's, it's quite profound. And honestly, it gives, gives permission really in a big way to the environmental left to actually finally and ultimately embrace nuclear for what it is, which is a, a zero carbon source of electricity. Um, but for me, I think back to the, uh, the, the, the nuclear film that, uh, that was just put out last year uh, from Oliver Stone and this, this film, in my opinion, did a good job of highlighting nuclear's place in the quote-unquote fight against uh, carbon emissions and, and climate change, right? But it didn't really do a whole lot to support nuclear energy for all of the other benefits that it has, aside from being a, a low-carbon or zero-carbon source of electricity. I'd like to hear, and, and I believe that I think that you, maybe you don't necessarily share that opinion about the film directly, but I know you believe that nuclear has a number of benefits that have absolutely nothing to do with carbon emissions. So could you talk about that really briefly and maybe tie that into this concept of inertia that you highlighted in your most recent piece? Yeah. And I would say Oliver Stone's film 
as imperfect as it was, is yet another social marker right. in the progress of the battle to regain the acceptance uh, of nuclear power for its rightful place in the repertoire of energy choices available to us um, as we try to strive to push humanity further up uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, uh, the, the benefits of nuclear, in fact, I was going to um, mildly correct a statement you made, which goes well beyond the production of electricity, of course, which I'm sure is something you know, but right. um, we, we wrote a piece recently profiling this really great project between, I believe it's X-Energy and, and Dow. I may have gotten the nuclear company's name wrong, but um, the piece was called Gaining Steam. And in fact, the production of industrial grade steam accounts for more carbon emissions worldwide than the combination of our transportation and aviation sectors. And, and very few people know that. And why is that? Well, uh, at, at almost all heavy industrial sites in the world, there exists a nuclear power traditionally cogeneration facility that at a very high level of efficiency produces both electricity and, and high-grade steam. And high-grade steam is needed for all manner of chemical and material transformations. Um, this is something engineers know well. And, and roughly 10% of the world's total carbon emissions arise from the need to produce steam. Wow. And so um, the latest generation of nuclear reactors um, have the potential to produce a reasonably good temperature steam, not quite as high as you know natural gas cogen plants can produce. But you can whack a big chunk of the base of the pyramid off. Um, and in fact, the nice thing about SMR technology is these quote unquote radius of concern around such small reactors is is radically diminished from the large modular old design reactors that we have today. And so that means, you know, in a post 9-11 world, the security around these chemical plants, for example, is already extraordinarily elevated. And you could drop a, a you know, next generation SMR reactor in the middle of one of those and displace the natural gas, most of the natural gas that is being used um, to generate both the electricity and the steam. And, and for all the talk that we hear about electric vehicles um, or wind and solar, um, none of those quote-unquote green energy options can address this massive wedge uh, of emissions that arise from the need to create steam, um, let alone, you know, um, micro-reactors for container shipping and so on and the, the endless possibilities um, that we see for nuclear power. Um, if it weren't for the Malthusian attack on nuclear power in the 60s and 70s, which, by the way, we should say was funded under the table by oil and gas interests in the fossil fuel sector. And, and, and just because we happen to be pro-energy doesn't mean we're pro everything about energy or everything that the fossil fuel industry has ever done. Um, we would be um, gaining far, a far higher proportion of our, our quanta of energy, if you will, from nuclear power today if it weren't for those efforts, which have been wildly successful, then we should say, kudos to them. They were way better at propaganda than the nuclear industry. I would say it's a recent phenomenon and only because of social media that people like yourself and, and you know, uh, Mark Nelson and Chris Kiefer and so on have been able to have such an impact. And to the extent that we've been able to pile on um, those efforts or give them a platform with some slightly wider reach, uh, we're certainly proud to have played our own role in it, however small it might be. But we do have hundreds of people with .gov emails that read Doomberg. And I do think that this proliferation of, um, of content 
we sort of call it the gig economy for brains, is taking down the barriers that the sort of traditional media outlets have built up around all of this. And if you only ever read the Washington Times, the Washington Post or the New York Times, you, you would assume that nuclear waste is this great threat to humanity and nuclear power is dirty and we could do everything that we need from wind and solar. Well, that's just not true today. And enough people read Justin's work and our work and Mark's work and Chris's work and pick your favorite bloggers on Substack or on Twitter um, or in threads or, you know, there's no way that the censorship uh, authorities can keep up in the grand game of whack-a-mole, um, especially when physics is on your side. Yeah. You know, I mean, uranium in a lot of its content that was having its heyday in 2023, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it was boomtown here, Doomberg, and you, you acknowledge that. And I'm, I'm also with you when I start seeing, uh, sentiment and also some of those uh, equity charts move higher and higher week after week. I started to get a little concerned because I know when things tend to go a little bit exponential, they tend to come down pretty difficult. Now, I'm not saying that these equities are going to crash by any means, but I do think it's reasonable to expect some sort of pullback here sometime this year, just, you know, as a financial speculator and observer. Um with that potential headwind, you've also been writing a lot on the fossil fuel sector. And in fact, you're uh, calling it like you see it and calling for a hydrocarbon glut. Uh, lots of production of fossil fuels heading into this year. And I'm just kind of curious if, if, if we're going to have a lot of supply of traditional fossil fuels, what does that mean? for the uranium and nuclear energy markets and its sentiment that had such a positive 2023? So I would say all things being equal, which is sort of the mother of all preemptive cop-outs, I suppose, um, it's a headwind for the uranium slash nuclear sector because the energy crisis has abated. And look, we got something very important wrong. We radically underestimated the capacity of the U.S. shale operators to produce at a level that they have. And we've spent a lot of time pondering what it is that we got wrong. And then we have been publishing to our subscribers, perhaps even at our own expense, what we believe the new truth is. And and we recently put out a piece, you know, there, there are two separate things. Like what is the short-term energy balance and what is sort of the long-term potential of fossil fuels? And we've been long been a believer that sort of peak cheap oil is a myth. And we've been publishing on that recently. And and that has probably inflamed a few, a few people that um, you know perhaps would prefer to just always have their their biases confirmed. Um, but we have to call it like we see it. The U.S. is awash in hydrocarbons. Uh, we were shocked when we did our sort of end of year. It all started when we did a, a, a our pro talk in November called um, "Liquefied Natural Glut" or something along those lines, um, where we did a, a, a global analysis of the natural gas market, and we realized that we have scores of major multi-decabillion dollar projects coming online all at once. And we're, and, you know, natural gas is a very valuable molecule and, and we just have a lot of it. And then when you look at the U.S., you know, the, the production in the shale patch and this concept of what is oil, you know, one of, one of the things we argued in our um, peak um, cheap oil is a myth piece is that people have far too narrow a definition of what oil is. Oil is any hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And the U.S. natural gas liquids production alone would put it as a top five OPEC producer. And, and that's a recent phenomenon. That's just all in the past decade. And so all told, 
what the BP, you know, annual statistical review would call oil. The U.S. is producing 20 million barrels a day. We are a hydrocarbon behemoth. We, we're swimming in hydrocarbons now just two years after the crisis, which, of course, I guess history would teach us is what we should expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so to the extent that the overall energy crisis was a tailwind for nuclear, it can only be, even though nuclear has its own set of tailwinds, i.e., alternative clean energy, carbon, you know, emissions concerns, um, the, the, the momentum coming out of COP28, the, the, the last dying breaths of the, of the Malthusians, um, all of those things are tailwinds, but you also have to be, as an investor, cognizant of the headwinds. And, and the fact that we are swimming in a sea of natural gas, for example, in the U.S., is just amazing and, and, and needs to be recognized and, and to be an input into your investment thesis. We're publishing a piece tomorrow um, about gas to liquids, uh, where you can basically take natural gas and turn it into diesel and jet fuel and gasoline and so on. And, and this can be done today. And in our view, in the long run, this puts a ceiling price, uh, a ceiling on the equilibrium price of oil, at least, because if oil gets out of hand too far, we'll just start billing those. And once we do, natural gas just becomes oil, i.e. a hydrocarbon that finds its way into a refinery. And so um, that's coming tomorrow, and that'll probably annoy some of our subscribers, but we have to call it like we see it. And if if you are looking at the totality of the investment thesis of uranium here in early January of 2024, it has come close to putting on the board what our mutual friend Tony Greer would call an Icarus print. Yeah. Um, charts don't go exponential forever. Pullbacks are healthy. They tend to wash out the weak hands to, to, to sort of borrow some language from the Reddit crowd. Um, and you might consolidate for a while before the next leg up. Now, again, this is all occurring at what is what Justin could probably tell me, but half the all-time price of uranium, which was achieved, what, 15 years ago. So on an inf- inflation-adjusted basis, it's probably a third of that price. There's a lot of room to run. You could double the price of uranium. You could triple the price of uranium, and nobody who makes electricity from uranium would care or notice because it's such a tiny input into the overall cost of running a nuclear power facility. So unlike oil and natural gas. Um, the fuel cost in this case is, is not that big of a deal. Um, and, and so there's, you know, if, if I were a heavy investor in uranium today, sitting on an enormous amount of profit, I would probably at least maybe buy some out of the money puts to hedge or, you know, um, shave a little bit of the risk and, and keep a close eye on the markets. It, it just feels like, I don't know, you guys have been around markets uh, at least as long as I have been. It, it it does have a bit of a frothy feel to it. And I think Rick Rule, if he were here, would probably say the same thing. You know, he's a pretty good timer of the markets. Uh, I don't want to speak for him, but I, you just have to be mindful of exponential ramps. Yeah. Uh, not everything is Bitcoin. I don't know if Justin's put his sell order out in his newsletter yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're a long way from it. I think um, I think you raised some really interesting points as far as uh, hydrocarbon glut and how that can affect things for nuclear going forward. Um, for me, looking at the investment landscape for uranium, for nuclear generally, there's kind of a really unique time period that we're in right now and are going to be in for the next three to five years. And that's basically the existing operating nuclear power plants have uncovered purchasing to do of uranium to actually fuel their reactors that are currently operating. If you take into account the, uh, the reactors under construction and the demand that that's going to create, 
that paints a certain picture. However, if we go into the 2030s and we actually see a hydrocarbon glut slow down the rate of, of new nuclear buildouts, that can affect, in my opinion, the long-term investment thesis. In the short to near term, there's just basically no supply that can come on sufficiently soon enough to stem what we think is going to be a continuous run up in the price. And to your point, the the cost of uranium to operate uh, a nuclear power plant, uranium itself, not the entire fuel cycle, but uranium itself is maybe 4%, 5% yeah. of the overall yeah. operating budget. So so it is a rounding error in terms of, of the cost of, for these operations. And we basically have a substantial supply deficit. We've got a spot market where 100,000 pounds purchased might move the price a dollar or two. It's it's never, ever been this thin in the history of this industry. And that's where we're at. We're in new territory. This is anomalous, what's going on in the Iranian market right now. And nobody knows how high this can go. And you're right, inflation adjusted, we're, what, 60, 65 bucks a pound, 2004. Um, so we've got um, a double, a double and a half to get to the previous high print. Inflation adjusted, 143 bucks a pound goes to, what, about 200 a pound. And we're right here at 93 of course, that's looking at the past. In the past previous bull market, there wasn't a supply deficit. You had a perceived deficit because the Chinese were building like crazy and announcing that they were going to build even more. And you had a couple of mine floods that triggered some panic in the market. And that's partly what led to the price rise. But until we see actual on the ground, massive production increases from Kazatomprom and in Kazakhstan in general, which we're skeptical about to begin with. Um, and, you know, next gen's arrow, uh, Denison's Phoenix, et cetera, et cetera, coming online, we're talking four five, six years from now, then we see the supply situation start to balance out for a moment in time, all the while current existing mines are starting to deplete. So it's, it's, a, it's a tricky situation, but I, I tend to agree with you looking out long term, if we actually see the pace of new nuclear construction starts slow down, or even to replace the, the plants that are going to be decommissioned at some point in the next decade or two. Um, because of cheap hydrocarbons, that could change the thesis in the long term. But as far as I can tell, there's very little that can that can shake me out right now because I think we have multiple years before we see a balanced market on the supply side. You know, I, I don't agree with Hart involved with anything that you said. I would just say and reiterate that as long as you're willing to absorb the volatility that comes with oh, such yeah. runs, yeah. Um, you have to have you know a long term time horizon and not be positioned in short dated options. Hundred percent. <laughs> Or anything like that, where, I, like, again, our mutual friend Tony Greer would say, before you buy a call option, slam your hand in a drawer and reconsider. <laughs> um, and so as long as the people listening are you know, mindful of, of the risks and the volatility and still believe in the thesis, if the price of uranium drops 20 bucks a pound in the next week, then uh, they would probably consider that a buying opportunity and maybe level up a little bit of their exposure. But, you know, things don't go straight up forever is, is the only caution. Yeah. And, and again... Um, there's plenty of headwinds that we haven't even talked about. So, for example, coming out of COP28, um, the OK has been given to progressive politicians across the U.S. to consider nuclear clean. We wrote about Michigan and its crazy, uh, you know, 100% quote unquote clean energy by some date in the future that is unachievable. And it's not really energy, it's electricity. And the Sankey diagram would show you that electricity is a small portion of the state's energy consumption. But nonetheless, when you inspect this document, which was guided by Gretchen Whitmer, who has national ambitions. And many people believe that when Gavin Newsom inevitably replaces Joe Biden on the 2024 ticket, cough, cough, um, that, that Whit Whitmer will be 
uh, his running mate, and she certainly positioned herself to be that option. Well, in her quote unquote 100% clean energy bill, nuclear is defined as clean. And that wouldn't have happened two years ago. Mm. Like it's a pretty stunning development. And for all of the noise around that bill and the Republican opposition to it, I, when we read the details of the bill and we published on it, like this, uh, that and carbon capture and, and sequestration for nuclear gas are both defined as quote unquote clean. And investors need to see where the chess pieces are moving. Like I, I do think coal is dead in the West. Um, we in, in the, the same um, presentation that we put together on, on the COP28, you know, we, we, we outlined what we think will be this grand bargain for, for, um, for climate change in the years ahead. And, and that grand bargain looks like this. Um, coal will be sunset in the West. Um, nuclear will be uh, revitalized and the Malthusians will be defeated or ignored. Um, natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration um, will replace coal and or bridge to nuclear. And um, the global south, however, very importantly, will be granted an exception to this coal phase-out plan, and they will continue to be allowed to use coal, quote-unquote allowed to use coal, not that we had any real control over what they do. Um, and we will heavily suggest that they implement some form of, of abatement to the carbon emissions, carbon capture, i.e., so that the, the coal build-out is not totally unabated. Um, and then we will continue to tinker around with wind and solar and electric vehicles, uh, pretending to ourselves that these will have any meaningful impact, when in reality, they're just sort of uh, grift opportunities uh, for the, the, the waste of public treasury money. And that's just, everyone has just got to plug their nose and put up with the fact that the government wastes a lot of money. That's sort of the outlines of a grand bargain. And I think there might be some tweaks at the edges, but if you're looking at a five to 10 year investment horizon, uh, you need to be mindful that you know coal in the West is dying Coal in the global south is booming. Um, natural gas with carbon capture will be a mania. Um, uranium will get a second life. Nuclear will get a second life. And uh, they'll continue to waste a lot of money on wind and solar, and it won't make a big difference as it pertains to our, our net carbon emissions. That, that's what we see happening in the next five to 10 years. That is what is politically palatable in, in the West. That is what the global south will accept. And frankly, we're going to roll the dice on any ne negative consequences of carbon emissions because ultimately it's too late to do really anything to bend the curve um, as it stands. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know? You and I have talked about in the last couple of years the magnitude of uh, fiscal deficits, especially in United States and uh, Western countries. You know, nuclear obviously nuclear energy comes with a price tag, and it's a pretty hefty price tag. Whether you're um, uh, building new plants or, or, or retrofitting uh, you know, uh, traditional uh, fossil fuel plants, but it does come at a pretty hefty price. Do we? Do you feel like that maybe that might be of concern as the sentiment for nuclear energy continues to improve, but we also continue to have these conversations about just how much debt we have in our books that there would be an unwillingness to spend that money for nuclear energy once the price tags <clears throat> come to the table? I, I would have three things to say on that. Okay. One, in the West, the quote-unquote price tag is vastly artificially inflated because of the wildly unnecessary regulatory scrutiny that the Malthusians have been able to impose upon the industry through their 
um, saturation of the government regulatory bodies for nefarious purposes. If you want to look at what the true cost of nuclear power is, you need to look no further than China, which is probably a, a quarter of what it costs to bring a gigawatt of, of nuclear power online here, which is why, of course, China and Russia are mopping up the floor with their technology offerings um, around the world in places like, you know, pick your favorite. Um, and and the, those who are buying sort of U.S. technology are doing so for geopolitical reasons, um, at least as a secondary hedge. Um, the second thing I would say is we should view investments in uranium in the same way that we view, quote unquote, investments in the national highway system. Once they come online, you have 60, 70, 80 years of clean, carbon-free, baseload power and steam available for future generations to exploit. And um, I don't think too many people were questioning Eisenhower when he laid down the framework for what was truly one of the greatest return on investment uh, that any federal government has ever done anywhere, which is the creation of the U.S. highway system, which we're all, frankly, taking full advantage of today. And then third, the government wastes so much money that on the list of things I'd cut before I got to nuclear power is almost everything else. Um, and so um, to the on the day that fiscal responsibility magically returns to Western governments, um, we got a lot of fat on the bone before we get to the bone of nuclear. That's fair. Well said. Um, Doomberg, <clears throat> I don't spend very much time on Twitter anymore, or X, as, as it's now called. Uh, but I do miss you uh, since you're since you vacated that platform. <laughs> but one of the things that I miss most was when you would post or, or repost a story, and I'm just going to throw this out because I'm going to make this up. But you'll you'll get the idea. UK invests 500 million in new wind project, and then you would retweet it and say more pain needed. And and this is sort of part of part of your theme that in the end physics will win. Now, our, our friend, our mutual friend, Mark Nelson and his uh, Radiant Energy Group went to Germany recently, uh, sometime in the past six months, and did some very uh, in-depth research on the plants that have been shut down and how many of them technically could be pretty easily restarted. And they came up with eight plants in Germany that have been recently shut down over the past, uh, let's see, they shut down six in the last two years that could be restarted. And now we're actually hearing there's uh, two relatively prominent political parties in Germany that are that are pushing towards restarting some of their nuclear power plants. We've seen uh, the GDP drop in Germany. We've seen industry leave the country. We've seen uh, them actually raise wind power farms to mine uh, lignite coal to, to keep the, the lights on. So what's your prediction going forward with Germany? Are they going to restart some of these plants? Look, Germany is the sort of the Waterloo of the old Malthusian movement, right? Um, and, and we've long said that the path function matters and that the, re, the, the, the sort of, if you push too far too fast, you will get a response that those on the progressive left might not like. And we're seeing that today in Germany. In fact, one of, we, we have several milestones that we check every week here at the chicken coop. One is the price of diesel, for example. We think the price of diesel is the leading indicator of inflation. Price of diesel is down. It's not surprising that suddenly the Fed is talking about rate cuts. Um, the other is the popularity of the IFD in, in Germany. Um, this is a what what the, the traditional press would consider a sort of far right reactionary political party. And in parts of Eastern Germany, they're polling at forty percent. Um, this is a protest vote, and 
um, if you starve the people of energy, they will revolt, as we've said. Uh, you know, on, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And the first stage of riot is at the ballot box. And if that doesn't work, the second, the second stage of riot is in the streets. And Germany has been robbed of its energy future. It has been robbed of its industry. It has a bunch of other issues, of course, and an ugly history, which frames the way in which they react to those issues, um, understandably. But the popularity of this, what, again, what the media would characterize as a far-right party, um, is something that the establishment in Europe is ill-prepared to handle. There's talk of trying to cancel this party, which would, of course, be the ultimate Streisand effect and would only drive its popularity even higher. These idiots have no idea what to do. Right. Um, but that party, for example, is one of the parties that, that is pro-nuclear energy, that is pro-going back to sanity, anti-renewables, anti... You know, uh, the, the ruling establishment in Germany with this crazy furnace law, for example, that's the kind of thing that ultimately causes people to reconsider what's actually going on. Uh, for those that are unaware, there was this crazy law where all... Um, you know, um, gas-powered furnaces and, and residences in, in Germany would have to be replaced with heat pumps in the name of, of uh, solving climate change. And the great irony, as an aside, of course, is that almost nobody in Germany has air conditioning and heat pumps work both ways. And by the deployment of these heat pumps, they were actually going to increase their carbon emissions substantially because the, the people who put these heat pumps in would begin to air condition their homes in the summer. But that's like just an example of unintended consequences. That, that's not... So just a funny, uh, you know, anecdote for today. Um, but back to the real point, um, we're seeing across Europe a pivot to the right, which we've been warning about. Like, hey, guys, like, if you rob people of primary energy, if you rob people of their ability to get a good paying job at a factory that uses energy to add value to, you know, higher, higher end manufacturing and so on, if, if, if nobody can invest in your country anymore because natural gas is five times what it is in the U.S., um, you're going to lose jobs, you're going to lose the people, and, and you're going to lose um, the right to govern. In fact, um, the polling numbers in Germany are so staggering that there's talk of um, Schultz resigning. I wouldn't be surprised to see that hit the wire in the next week or two. Um, if elections were held today, the coalition would collapse. Um, the Green Party has way overplayed its hand. It was always a fringe party anyway that the fact that um, you know, parliamentary systems disproportionately reward minority parties that can convert a more popular party from a, plural, a plurality to a majority. We see this in Canada today. The NDP controls Trudeau. I mean, let's be clear. Um, and so uh, this is, a, this is a, a flaw in the parliamentary system in the West, that a party like the Greens, who've never polled more than 15% in any election, basically dominate um, German energy policy to the point where they can kneecap an entire generation of Germans. Um, you know, shutting down these nuclear reactors will be seen by historians as one of the stupidest decisions a country has ever made. There's just no other way to say it. And the, the, the people of Germany should be praising Mark Nelson and his work. He's doing his level best to save them from themselves. You know, it, it's just insane to see this happen. And for the rest of us, we need to use Germany as a really good, bad example. Um, and look, the U.S., to its credit, we have, what, 60 operating nuclear reactors. There's very little talk of shutting down any more of them. Gretchen Whitner in, in Michigan is, is exploring ways to bring Palisades back online. Gavin Newsom is spending political capital to save Diablo Canyon. 
we just started our, our first major nuclear power plant in Georgia in, in many years. Um, there's, there's this, you know, SMR for industrial grade steam project that we talked about, you know, that, that companies as prestigious and as large and as important as Dow are exploring. Uh, we see the can-do reactor momentum in Canada and foreign countries ordering them and, and Ontario going back down the road of nuclear power and, and largely eschewing um, unreliable intermittent renewables. The momentum's on our side and Germany will eventually flip. It just, it's just inevitable. And when they do, perhaps that might be a good time to take a few profits off the table, Justin, because that will truly mark the top and sentiment uh, for, for nuclear energy. Uh, Doom, I know, I know we're getting uh, close for time, but I, with that said, I do want to go back and pick your brain a little bit because you wrote a piece not too long ago uh, relating the hydrocarbon market with the Monroe Doctrine, which was a pretty fascinating read, actually. I, I mean, I really enjoyed that piece. In that piece, you didn't really mention uranium or nuclear energy, but with what you just kind of laid out, uh, is there maybe going to be an opening of the door here for such, um, it's, you could rewrite that piece using uh, uranium nuclear energy instead of the hydrocarbons. Do you think that might happen in a couple of years? Yeah, we did include uranium in that piece because just between Canada and the U.S., basically North America, the Western Hemisphere is already right. largely capable of being you know, energy independent when it comes to uranium. The deposits in Canada are amazing. The um, Nevada, pick your favorite. And we have the capacity to enrich. Of course, nobody knows how to enrich uranium better than the U.S. military and transferring that to the civilian uh, population is, is simply a matter of political will. We have a fleet of, of aircraft, oh, sorry, of submarines that, that run on uh, nuclear power today and, and aircraft carriers. And, and so like we know how to run micro reactors. We could easily transfer that technology to the civilian sector. Um, we have everything we need. So if we built truly a Monroe wall around the Western Hemisphere, just a, what a superpower that would be, you know, from the, the agriculture of Canada and the U.S. and the fertilizer capacity and the, the, the Great Lakes and, and the you know, uh, all of the resources of South America and their desire to, you know, to, to emerge and to develop and to achieve a lifestyle that we've become accustomed to. Uh, it's truly remarkable what we have on offer here and why we mess around in the Middle East, um, which is tantamount to basically protecting the energy flows from the Middle East to China um, is beyond me. Like, I understand that, you know, we have large weapons companies and if you're in the bomb making business pieces of working capital problem, I get that. Uh, but but surely we can't just give them money and avoid the wars um, so that like less of us die and the world is less disrupted from from the adventures that we always seem to find ourselves in. I know that yeah. probably makes me uh, a, 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 a pacifist uh, to, to be uh, outcast. But honestly, as the, as the parents of draft eligible children, uh, I would appreciate it at least if our Congress uh, representative would, would would at least take a vote on the matter. Um, before we, we embark upon the next war. Thank you so much for your time. It's good to good to connect. Always, gentlemen, and um, happy to come back anytime you'll have me. And congrats, congratulations to both of you on, on, on a fantastic 2023, and may you both have a, a, a truly amazing 2024. All right. Well, you're not, on, you. you're not on Twitter anymore, but for those listening who may, for some reason, not know about your Substack or your newsletter, where do, we, where do they find you? Yeah, everything we do is now on Substack. Uh, Doomberg.substack.com is the main page. We're uh, we are active on Notes, which is the sort of a, a light variant of Twitter that Substack has put out. It, it's a bit more civilized, um, 
and um, a little less algo driven. There's a little less mean spiritedness and, and so on. And look, just to clear things up, like we would have stayed on Twitter if it weren't for the fact that the new owner of Twitter has decided that Substack is a major competitor of his and, and he proactively kills all links and discussions about Substack articles and so on. It just became, given the small size of our team, very low return on effort. And, and we would we decided that we would focus our efforts on Substack. But if you go to doomberg.substack.com, you can see Doomberg Pro. You can see all the podcasts we've been on. You can see our notes. Everything we do is there. One-stop shopping. Um, it's been a real pleasure to be here today. And, and what a gift that we all have to be able to do this for a living uh, each and every day. And let's never, let's never lose sight of that because we are truly blessed. Um, and I, and I, I know from talking to you guys offline that you had a very blessed holiday. May you have a fantastic 2024 and beyond. Thank you. you too. Thanks so much. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. And, and uh, uh, same to you. Um, I'll, many blessings to you and your team and, and continue the great work. Uh, couldn't recommend it high enough. Thank you. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Going Nuclear, Justin, or myself, and the Clear Commodity Network team and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.